Before we begin this morning, I just want to say a word of uh, thanksgiving to all of our, our musicians, our instrumentalists, the choir. Uh, just every week they come and give of themselves so well, and they serve the church so well to let us sing together. I mean, the great instrument is the one in front of me right now is the congregational voice, but those in our music ministry have just done so so well. And it's not, when I look up here and I see these guys playing, I, I don't just think of uh, skill or ability or consistency. What I see every time I look at this group on the platform are people who have been transformed by Christ and they love the church and they love the ministry and they love serving the people. And that's not just those here this morning, but there's many others who assist us. So I just wanted to say thank you to them and their ministry to all of us every Lord's Day. It's great music at Christmas time, huh? And uh, we, we love the opportunity to sing together and worship Christ in that way. Revelation 2 and 3. What, <clears throat> what sermon would Jesus preach to the churches today if he were walking the earth as he did in the days of his first advent, his first coming as recorded in the gospel accounts. You have to wonder what sermon would Jesus preach to Summit Woods Baptist Church if he were here? You don't have to wonder about that. That's what you find in Revelation 2 and 3. We have it for us here. You remember a few weeks ago when we considered Jesus' opening command to the Apostle John in chapter 1, verse 11, when he said to write in a book, or that is a scroll, what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So the book of Revelation is... As we learn in chapter 1, verse 3, a prophecy that came to John through a number of visions that he wrote down and gave us some of the interpretation of and explanation of so that these churches could persevere in light of what they know will happen when the Lord returns. Last week when we looked at chapter 1 and verse 19 which is a more detailed breakdown of what John was to write, we learned that he was to write down the things which you have seen, which was the vision of the glorified Christ and his response to it that we saw in chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. He was also to write down the things which are, that is, those things which are contemporary with John. And he was then to write down the things which will take place after these things. And when we examine the use of that phrase, after these things, we know that what happens after these things is what John sees in a vision beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, moving all the way through the remainder of chapter 22. Now, knowing that what he saw was the initial vision of Christ in chapter 1 and the things that happen after these things is the vision of the future described in chapters 4 to 22, it's easy to see then what the things which are is referring to. It leaves chapters 2 and 3. These are the things that are because when you get to chapter 4, you begin to describe things that happen after these things, after the things that are, which is what he describes in chapters 2 and 3. The breakdown is very self-evident. So what do we find in chapters 2 and 3? Seven letters to seven different churches that existed in John's day addressing specific issues within them. Now, why is it that Jesus chose these seven churches? Why did he only choose seven of them when there were so many other churches and many other prominent churches that he could have referred to? Certainly there was the very first church in Jerusalem, the missionary sending church of Antioch. There were the many churches in the area of Galatia that Paul addressed just northeast of these seven churches. There were a number of congregations in Rome, according to the book of Romans. There's a church in Corinth, a thriving church in Philippi, a very strong church in Thessalonica, of which we studied the letters to the Thessalonians recently. Just up the road from Laodicea was the strong church in Colossae. 
And another church north of Laodicea known as Hierapolis, which is mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, verse 13. When we studied the book of Titus, we know there were a number of churches started on the island of Crete. James chapter 1, verse 1, and 1 Peter 1, 1 talk about a number of predominantly Jewish churches. Cappadocia, Bithynia, Asia are other areas where these churches are mentioned. None of those churches are mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. Only seven out of the many, many churches that could have been named, only seven are named. It's likely that John was familiar with these churches because of his ministry in the later years of his life. He was headquartered in Ephesus and likely knew of and perhaps had been a part of all of these churches. Some have suggested that what we see here is from Ephesus around is kind of a circular postal route that a, that a person who is traveling to deliver the mail would, would take. It's hard to establish that historically, but there seems to be some close proximity of these seven churches. It is significant that seven of them are chosen in a book filled with Old Testament allusions Seven being the number established at creation to point to what is finished or complete, it's likely best to see that these seven churches and their respective challenges and blessings at the time John received the revelation are representative of all the churches. They represent a comprehensive message from Jesus about all the churches throughout all the ages up until the events beginning to be described in chapter 4 verse 1 which then happens after these things. I don't know why he chose these particular seven churches. He doesn't tell us. It's almost as if it doesn't really matter because this message affects any group that is a legitimate church. We need to remember all seven of these churches received the whole of the book of Revelation, not merely their respective letter. They got the whole thing. And the whole book comprises Christ's final prophetic revelation to his people because chapter 22 assumes there will be no more prophecy given. Furthermore, at the conclusion of each of the seven letters is the same phrase, and you can see it after every letter, the same phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to whom? The churches, all of the churches. Not just the one who is receiving the letter, but to all the churches. Every church is to listen to every message given to all the other churches. Each church is addressed by some aspect in this vision that John saw in his opening vision. There's some aspect of the nature of Christ that we see here. The problems addressed in these seven churches, they are specific to the historical moments of these churches mentioned, but each church has promises made to them about their overcoming so that they would receive a reward that comes from Jesus when he returns. And that's a reward that any Christian would receive when he returns. So in other words, what you're finding in Revelation 2 and 3 is essentially a single sermon from Jesus. And he's a great preacher. It has multiple points to it. Isn't that great? I know you're worried here. I'll let you know in a minute how many I find. Don't worry. We had seven and two sermons and 12 and another. The next divine number would be what? Like 24? Maybe. Now, there have been some who have written on the book of Revelation and have studied the book who suggest that this comprehensive picture of the churches should be understood in seven different epochs of time within church history. For example, one commentator suggests that the church in Ephesus is actually representative of the apostolic church of the first century, and the church in Smyrna represents the churches of the second and third centuries. The church in Pergamum represents the churches beginning with Constantine in the third century, continuing to the end. The church in Thyatira represents the churches of the Vatican or the Roman Catholic church from Pope Gregory the Great to the end. 
The church in Sardis is the Reformation church of the 16th century, and the church in Philadelphia represents the churches of the modern missionary movement beginning with William Carey, and the church in Laodicea represents the apostate church of the last days, of which most believe would represent us. That's a very popular view, and it was a very popular view not just in recent history, but in ancient history as well. The problem with that view is that none of it can be comprehensively proven. It makes the historical message to the churches that are actually mentioned here, it makes their historical issues absolutely irrelevant because it doesn't really refer to them. And the churches in every age from the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2 have been faced with all of the issues addressed in all of these seven letters. Further, a number of historical inconsistencies arise when you try to fit church history into these seven churches and make them fit these categories. You're going to run into all kinds of problems trying to squeeze them into that. The reality is is that problems faced in the first century are faced today. Any problem that you address or any commendation that is given to any of the churches here in these ancient letters, any church, including our church, could face all of them throughout our history. Each of the seven churches is representative of any era within the history of the church up until the events of God's judgment on the earth that begins, as recorded in chapter 4, verse 1, that begins events that happen, what? After these things. Now, you begin to examine these letters, and you're going to find there's somewhat of a pattern that they follow. And if you wanted to study these, it's really helpful to go in and find these patterns and look at them and see what they're saying. Every letter opens with the same type of salutation to the angel of the church. Every letter opens with a portrait of Christ, the one who or he who. Each letter indicates what Christ knows about the church. Jesus will say to everyone, I know. Each letter contains either a commendation or a condemnation or some combination of them. Each letter ends with a promise to those who, over, who are overcomers, he who overcomes. Every letter concludes with a general call for all the churches to hear what the Spirit is saying to all the churches, which means then that Jesus has an overall message for all of his churches throughout all of their existence. Jesus' single sermon in these two chapters could apply to every local church of every era or any church in any era at any time. Now, before we start looking at each one of these individuals, and that will be our plan, we'll take a little bit of time off just next Lord's Day for Christmas Eve morning and evening, and we're going to dig into Ephesians 1 at both the morning and the the afternoon service, but then we'll go back to it. It'll be a great way to start off New Year's Eve, won't it, to look at the church in Ephesus, and then we'll just consider one church at a time. But I I wanted, and and I, I hadn't originally planned to do this until Monday morning, and I was looking at this and said, no, we need to see the comprehensive message. So that sent the staff scurrying around to fix the problem that I had just now created especially for the sermon study class. I'm sorry. (laughs) Not sorry, really. (laughs) So before we get into those respective churches, let's look at the whole. So from what we see from all of the churches in Revelation 2 to 3, I want you to look at Jesus' single sermon and eight points to this sermon. What a godly guy, right? Of course, he's the son of God. Eight points. You say, well, that doesn't sound like a divine number. Well, it's what I found, all right? It's what we're going to go with this morning. Trying to take these patterns that you see and these issues that you find, and what is Jesus actually saying to the churches? See if we can discern it together. The first point of Jesus' sermon here in Revelation 2 and 3 is this. I am speaking to my churches. I am speaking to my churches. Not I have spoken, I'm speaking. Now what he is speaking is what has been written. 
There is anything more that we need, but what we need to keep in mind is that he is speaking authoritatively to his churches. You see it. To the angel of the church, he's writing, he's pinning, he's addressing every local church, which means he's speaking to us. Keep this in mind. Jesus is not silent. He is not an absentee Lord. He is not a clockmaker who walks away from his craft to let it run on its own. He addresses the angel of every church. Now, we discussed what is meant by the angel. It's likely not that of a human messenger, but a heavenly messenger. There's a number of reasons for that. And we don't know who it is that the heavenly messenger brought the book of Revelation 2 within each church. Perhaps it was a prophet. Perhaps it was an elder of the church. We simply don't know. We're not told. But we're told that it's an angel, which in my mind, when I read that and I read who these angels are and where they are found, this means Jesus is not only speaking to the churches, but he's doing so authoritatively. Why? Because where are the angels when John sees them in the vision? They're in the palm of his right hand. His hand of authority and power is holding the messengers to his churches. These heavenly messengers will speak what he sends them to speak and no more and no less. He's not speaking through pastors or members or prophets who have their own message from God to speak to the churches. Jesus himself has a message and he sent his authoritative representatives, the angels, to give that message to every church so that the church would know he is speaking to us. Which rem reminds us, Jesus remains the head of his church. He's not abdicated that role to anyone. His authoritative written word that he has given to us is his message. It is clear, it is relevant, it is personal. He is speaking to us today. Now, before moving on, I want to show you a quick note about the arrangement of these letters because it shows the kinds of churches that Jesus is actually speaking to. In fact, I think we can take the seven letters and you can see basically three kinds of churches that he is speaking to. If you read these letters, you're going to begin to find that they're arranged in a very purposeful order. In fact, theologians and Bible scholars call this a chiastic construction. That might not mean too much to you, but it is a chiastic construction, meaning it's kind of like the sandwich. You've heard that before, haven't you? We've talked about that here. A sandwich, two pieces of bread, likely because it's good, you need two pieces of cheese and then the meat in the middle, right? Well, that's what you find here. The first and the last churches are related. The second and the sixth church are related. The third, the fourth, and the fifth are right in the middle, and they're related to one another. It's a very purposeful arrangement. So you have three groups within these seven churches. What kinds of churches are here, are here that he's speaking to? Well, first he addresses the comfortable churches. The comfortable churches. This is the first and the last church that is mentioned, Ephesus and Laodicea. Both of these churches have doctrinal convictions, but they have problems with their affections for the Lord. They lack spiritual affection. They lack spiritual zeal. Ephesus' love is cold, and Laodicea's commitment is lukewarm. And cold love and lukewarm affection make them useless churches if they don't change. In fact, each church is going to lose its very identity, they are told, if they do not repent. And both churches are called to repent. And both are called to repent specifically, chapter 2, verse 5, and chapter 3, verse 19. The second group of churches is what we could call the committed churches. This is the second and the sixth church, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Neither of these churches receive any word of condemnation or correction. Jesus doesn't have anything against either of these churches. He simply commends them. 
They're faithful churches. They're pure churches who are under significant cultural scrutiny and temptation to abandon their loyalty to Christ. But they're committed. They suffer, but they are committed to Christ. The third group is this middle group, the third, the fourth, the fifth church. These are the compromised churches, the compromised churches, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. Pergamum receives no commendation from Christ at all. Thyatira and Sardis have a small group within them who are faithful, but all three of them have compromised themselves doctrinally. Pergamum tolerates some who hold the teaching of Balaam and are involved with idolatry that leads people to immorality. Thyatira tolerates a false teacher likened to the Old Testament woman Jezebel and receives the worst negative evaluation of all the churches. Likely, this is the worst church of all of them. It receives the most the most words from Jesus to all the churches comes to the church in Thyatira. Sardis has deeds that are not complicit with Jesus' instruction and leads them astray. They are all compromised theologically, which has led them to compromise morally and threatens their very existence. They're compromised churches. Now, there are faithful churches, but you do notice that Of the seven churches, only two are completely faithful. Five of them are not. I think that should encourage you. And it should be instructive to us. We look around the world today and we look around the church today and we're always looking at churches and we're saying, well, they've got that problem and they've got that problem and they've got that problem. Look at that church. It's got this issue. They probably fit within these categories of problematic churches, don't they? We see that all the time. And we do see a few faithful churches. You say, why is it just a few that are faithful? What should encourage us is that the Lord of the church is speaking to all those churches. And when he speaks to the church, he's not doing so because he wants to condemn them. He wants to change them, doesn't he? He loves the church. Even the problematic churches, which is most of us. And let's say us and not them. We could easily be any of these churches. You could fall into any of these problems. And we we might pride ourselves doctrinally. We'd easily become a church like Ephesus that would let our love grow cold. We could easily have a well-formed doctrinal statement published on our website that is orthodox and clear and be lukewarm. It's easy to to fall into that. We could easily be any of these churches. So you know what? Jesus is speaking to us. And he cares about his churches. Why would he warn these problematic churches if he didn't care? There's a second point in Jesus' sermon. He's not just speaking He says this to the churches, I must be central in my churches. I must be central in my churches. To be honest with you, this is the great challenge and temptation for every church is to keep Christ right at the center of what we do, what we don't do, where is Christ's lordship? I mean, that's the problem in your life individually and my life individually is trying to keep Christ at the very center of it. It's going to be the problem for our collective community of followers of Christ. Now, we know that this is one of the points of his sermon because in every single letter, it says, these things says the one. And there's a description of Christ. And most of those descriptions go back to that opening revelation of Jesus that John saw and that multifaceted description of the Lord that we saw in chapter 1 in his glory. And they were read for you by Dalton in chapter 2, verse 1, and verse 8, and 12, and 18. Chapter 3, verse 1, 7, and 14. Every attribute of Jesus highlighted 
emphasizes a specific quality of his nature that, spe- that speaks to a specific need or a specific sin or a specific encouragement to every church. What is he telling us? I have to be central. When you think about your needs, you need to think about me. When you think about being encouraged, you need to think about Christ. When you think about what needs to change, it has to be with Christ at the middle of it. Church problems are always corrected by Christ's person. What the church needs is always met by who Christ is. What the church should emphasize in all that it does must show the centrality of her Lord. Think of this, we exist as a congregation. Summit Woods exists, every one of these seven churches exists, all churches exist to display the character of Jesus to the world through the character of our collective congregation. Yes, that includes your individual life, but it really speaks to the overall testimony of our church in the community to the world. What are we saying about the centrality of our Lord? 1 Corinthians 3.11 says Jesus is the foundation of the church. Ephesians 1.22, he's the head over all things to the church. Ephesians 1.23, the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Colossians 3, or Colossians 1.17, Jesus is before all things. He's at the head of all things. In him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why? Why is he so prominent? So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. You do understand that sin is first and foremost an affront to the nature of Christ. So obedience, then, is a realignment towards Christ's centrality. If sin, if sin is first and foremost an affront to the nature of Christ, obedience is realigning you under the centrality of Christ. Obedience is not just following a couple of rules. It's saying you must be Lord of my life. You must be at the center. When Jesus evaluates a congregation, he does so by the measuring rod of his own nature, not by any other standard. You understand that, right? There's coming a day of evaluation for every local church. 1 Corinthians 3 describes that around verses 12 to 15. There's coming an evaluation of every local church and the standard by which he's going to evaluate those churches is his own nature. He's not going to look at it and say, what were your attendance figures and your budget and, and uh, you know, how prominent were your elders? He's not going to look at what kind of, you know, societal influence that you had. He's going to look at whether or not we obeyed him. He's going to look at whether or not we were faithful to what he revealed to us to do, to believe, to say. He's going to evaluate us as to whether he was central among us. I think that's uh, an important question for us to keep in mind, how central is Jesus, especially this time of year. This time of year, we love to highlight our traditions, do we not? We have family traditions, we have cultural traditions, we have societal traditions, and we love to be loyal to our traditions. We talk about our loyalty to our traditions. This is what we do on this day or Christmas Eve. But we we, we can't let loyalty to traditions eclipse the centrality of Christ, can we? No. I mean, where in the Bible does it say we have to have Christmas Eve services? And where in the Bible are candles supposed to be used? You're like, oh, no, you're not. (laughs) Oh, well, listen, where I'm from, we never had Christmas Eve service. We had Christmas Day service because we were really holy. (laughs) I mean, after all, it's Christmas. It's a day that marks the incarnation of Christ. And you're going to highlight family Christmas gift opening over the gathering of the church to worship the incarnate Christ. You see how godly we were? 
Or so some churches across our country, there's no Christmas Eve service, no Christmas Day service. They're like, where's that in the Bible? And candles? Is that prescribed in Scripture? I, you, you say, Don't, get off my tradition. Listen, it's a fine tradition, and you can use it well to evangelize and promote the gospel and enjoy the incarnation and what the Bible teaches, but never want to elevate something like that to a place of supposed obedience. Like if we didn't have this, would the Lord be displeased with us? I don't think he's going to ask, did you have Christmas Eve services or Christmas Day services? In fact, we, we don't need to make up a mission statement for our church either. You know that? He told us what the mission is. We just need to make sure that we're communicating his mission to our flock. When we make congregational decisions, we're asking what best represents our Lord and his lordship over us. How do we receive members and remove members and care for members? All of that should be motivated by what we think about Christ and our responsibility to him, first and foremost. What we sing, why we sing, the way we sing should show the centrality and the value of Christ. The nature of Christ must be so central that it compels the behavior of our church. When he evaluates the church, he's going to do so by the measuring rod of his own nature. He must be central. There's a third point in Jesus' sermon to his churches. Point number three, I know the truth about my churches. I know the truth about my churches. In all seven of the churches, Jesus repeats this phrase, I know. That should both be haunting and helpful, convicting and encouraging. I know. Well, what does he know? What does he know about his churches? Let me arrange this for us in a couple of ideas. First, Jesus says, I know you work with problem people. I know you work with problem people. Ephesians or pardon me, the church in Ephesus, Revelation 2, 2. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that, what does he know about them? That you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. He knows that this church in Ephesus is working with people who are problematic that there are problematic people in their midst. And the problem people Jesus focuses upon are primarily leaders who are leading the church astray from the centrality of the gospel. That's why when you're choosing leaders in a church, it's all about biblical character that looks like the Lord Jesus Christ more than public image and effective public skills. We must be careful in taking in members who know and they evidence the gospel of Christ because the members will then choose who her leaders will be and the direction the church will go. It's important for us to know why people desire to become members and how that is correctly tied to their understanding of Christ and the word because that will then set the ethos of the church. Why is it that elders meet with those who are going to teach an equipping class or we meet with people who are going to teach our children the things of Christ and the Word of God and we meet with those who are going to preach on a Sunday evening as they're learning how to preach? Why do we do all of that? Where the leaders go, the church goes. There are problematic leaders in churches, aren't there? You've experienced that. I've experienced that. I might have been one of those may be one of those. And the Lord knows it. The Lord knows it. The leaders among us are going to be the people who are influencing us, shaping the character of the church. That's why ongoing discipleship publicly, privately, along with church discipline are critical to the health of the church, right? It was Paul who reminded the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 about a man who was in constant sin, unrepentant sin, and said, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 5, 4, 
When you are assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus. So this isn't some random idea. This is Christ dealing with this problematic person. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven will do what? Leaven the whole lump of dough. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. The rationale behind church discipline is that a congregation is to recognize a person's rejection of the truth. They recognize that person's rejection of the truth and what they are doing in turn through discipline is recognizing what heaven or Christ has already recognized. We're not coming up with our own criteria. We're applying the evaluation of Christ to the problematic issues and people within our congregation. Matthew 18, 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, and this is in response to church discipline, whatever you bind on earth in discipline shall have already been bound in heaven. You're merely recognizing heaven's authority. Whatever you loose on earth, that is, whatever you recognize as legitimate and spiritually true shall have already been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything, that is in regard to discipline in the church, that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Why? For where two or three have gathered in my name, how does that end? I am in their midst. I am the one controlling those decisions. This is Jesus again saying through church discipline, I know that you work with problematic people and you have to deal with that. Sometimes elders lose sleep over that. Sometimes you lose sleep over all the false teachers that exist. And and you, you lose sleep and you get all worked up about this stuff. Do you not know that the Lord knows well, what am I going to do about it? Well, there are some things prescribed, and you do what you, do, you can do, and you be faithful to what you can be faithful to, but at the end of the day, do you realize the Lord knows? He understands. He cares. What else does he know? Secondly, I know your perseverance in suffering. I know your perseverance in suffering. We see this in three different churches, Smyrna, In chapter 2, verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That's a powerful statement. Pergamum is another church he knows about, chapter 2, verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Church in Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 19, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. You ever seen a church that just seems to go through one after another event of people just getting hammered by the world, suffering? The Lord knows. That should be a help to us. It should be an encouragement to us. If there's a congregation that is maligned or attacked or singled out by the culture or falsely accused, the Lord of the church knows that and he cares about that. It's not going to slip his attention. He is going to deal with it. It might not be in the timing you think or when you would like it to be or how. He knows. If a church faces an intensely oppositional society, the Lord of the church knows. He cares about that and he's involved in it. If no one else in the world knows of the affliction of a congregation and what they're suffering and what they're going through and how faithful they've been, the Lord knows. You understand this. If we're suffering as a church, we don't have to have the acknowledgement of the rest of the world when the Lord of the church knows what we're, we're suffering. I don't have to make a movie about our suffering. 
Fine if you do, but I don't have to make a movie about it. I don't have to broadcast it. If I'm really content that the Lord knows our suffering, I'm under him. The fact that he knows should be an encouragement. He's going to avenge the suffering of his people. You do understand that? In fact, if you look at chapter 6, verse 9 of Revelation, you'll see this very thing. When the Lord begins to bring his wrath on the earth, verse 9, when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. They're in heaven. They've been slaughtered. They've been martyred. And what are they doing? Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It's almost as if nobody has seen what has happened to us. No one's acknowledging this injustice. How long are you going to let this go? And there was given to them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while. What does that mean? Settle down. Rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who will be killed even as they had been, would be completed. That's interesting, isn't it? Who's in control of all this? Who knows? Remember what we learned in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1? Paul says in verse 4, we, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. The Lord knows the suffering of his people and he's going to avenge it nothing for us to worry about he knows what else does he know third he knows your true condition he knows your true condition this is the church in Sardis and the church in Laodicea in Sardis Revelation 3 1 to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Or verse 15, Laodicea, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. I know your true condition. You could look alive but be dead, right? Excitement, external joy, even things like friendliness and warm-heartedness when people come, those can be wonderful expressions of true fellowship and true stimulation through the Word and the work of God. But all of those things can also be falsely manufactured too. Worship can be stage-managed. Greeting can be insincerely performed. Excitement and joy can be manufactured. Friendliness can be surface level, and you know that. Genuine spiritual vibrancy is not determined by externally observed expressions. Now, to be sure, to be sure, genuine spiritual vibrancy is going to have affection to it. But you also understand spiritual people, true spiritual people still weep. They have difficult days and they find themselves momentarily preoccupied with the weight of their current trial. That's true. 
And it may be difficult for any one of us to know the true spiritual condition of somebody who appears to be outwardly alive but is inwardly dead. It might be hard for us. It may be challenging to know the difference between spiritual complacency and a momentary spiritual struggle. But the Lord knows. The Lord knows. He knows if our spiritual condition is false and fake and manufactured and managed. The culture might be impressed, but the Lord knows. His eyes that are a flame of fire pierces through all of the facade and sees what's really under the surface. I don't have to know and you don't have to know about the motivations of everybody in the church because you know who knows? The Lord knows. Yes, we need to be faithful to assess fruit, but we can't be the final judge of genuineness. The Lord of the church knows the true spiritual condition of each individual in every congregation. Let me give you one more thing that he knows. I know your faithfulness to my word. I know your faithfulness to my word. This is the church in Philadelphia. Chapter 3, verse 8. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power. Notice that. You have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. You, you know that struggling churches are not necessarily complacent churches. They're not necessarily compromised churches. Small doesn't necessarily indicate unfaithfulness. Insignificant influence in society does not necessarily indicate ineffectiveness spiritually. The Lord knows a faithful people, even when their numbers and their influence and their impact seem to reflect a little power. He knows if we're keeping the word. You know, I think about this every now and then. It will probably be astounding to us when we enter into the future kingdom. And we find people from places that we just assume possessed hardly any to know global cultural influence. And they have prominent places in the kingdom. We'll get there and like, that was even a country? There were people from there? And look what role they have in the kingdom of God because he knows a little power can still be very faithful to his word. The Lord knows the heart. He understands who's faithful to him. Nothing's hidden from the Lord. He knows the truth about our church. He knows the truth about every single church. Do you trust that? Do you trust what he knows? Are you settled by that? All right, we got to move on. Fourth point of Jesus' sermon to the churches. I will address sin in my churches. I will address sin in my churches. Listen, the, the church is referred to in the scriptures as the body of Christ, meaning the church is a gathering of Christians called to display the character of Jesus. And what the world sees in the church will become the testimony the world has of our Lord. So how concerned do you think Jesus is about sin in the church? Because it influences how the world sees him. Three areas of sin Jesus will address. First, I will address sin affecting your spiritual vitality. Again, this is the church in Ephesus. I have this against you. Chapter 2, verse 4. I have this against you. You have left your first love. And Laodicea in chapter 3, verse 15. I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. They lack spiritual vibrancy. They lack devotion to Christ. Maybe they had a doctrinal facade, but it wasn't real inside. They lacked affection for the treasure of Jesus while they loved worldly treasure. Laodicea was wealthy in terms of worldly influence and power and what they possessed, but empty of the treasure of Christ. And Jesus addresses both of them. It's not enough to have just clear doctrine. 
without devoted love for Christ. It's not enough to have financial or cultural prowess when you have spiritual lethargy among you. And isn't it kind of the Lord to point it out? Isn't that kind? Not to leave them that way, but to say, I'm not pointing this sin out to condemn you, but that you might repent. It's a mercy of God. Secondly, another sin, Jesus says, I will address sin compromising your doctrinal integrity. I will address sin compromising your doctrinal integrity. Pergamum in chapter 2, verse 14. I have a few things against you. You have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit act of immorality. Chapter 2, verse 20, the church in Thyatira, I have this against you. See, he's addressing the sin. I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Doctrinal compromise ultimately leads to some form of idolatry, doesn't it? Because you start believing what is false and loving what is false and you are enamored with it and you hold to it as if it were true. It's idolatry. The church can't pretend to be strong when it tolerates bad theology. There are no strong churches that tolerate bad theology. It leads to idolatry all the time. Doctrinal integrity is not found merely within the statement that we publish on the website either. Our doctrinal integrity is found in what we do with that doctrine among us in our own behavior. So you can have it well stated online. What are we doing with it? A third sin he addresses, he says in the church to Sardis, Revelation 3.2, I will address sin corrupting your personal purity. Sin corrupting your personal purity, chapter 3, verse 2. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Verse 4, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You better wake up. You better deal with personal purity. You have a few who have. This is a church that appears to have life, but persistent impurity and tolerated immorality. I think this is a more pervasive problem than we like to admit. How many men's groups prize being vulnerable about our sin? But that's an end. They don't do anything with it. How many women's groups want to be open about their struggles and their anger and their bitterness, but it's never challenged? We just prize being open. That leads to immoral behavior. Belief and affection, you can't separate those two things. Doctrine and desire have to live with each other. If you only have belief, the church dries up and it will isolate itself from everything and everyone touching no one and reaching no one and caring for no one and it will eventually die for lack of any vitality. And if we only have passion in our church and excitement, then the church is going to blow up because it embraces everyone and everything and it's open to every wind of doctrine and it's easily taken advantage of, easily blown over. There's no foundation, no root, nothing to hold them firm. So what's the solution to that? The solution to all these sins are the three R's of Revelation 2 and 3. We'll go through them real quick. One, remember, mentioned to Ephesus and to Sardis, remember from where you've fallen, Revelation 2, 5, Revelation 3, 3, remember what you have received and heard. You go back to what you know is true. You remember what is true. The second R, if you want to deal with these sins, is you have to repent, Turn away from them. There's no easy way to deal with sin outside of repentance. You, you have to choose to walk the other direction. Ephesus is told in chapter 2, verse 5, remember and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 16, repent. 
Sardis, Revelation 3.3, remember what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. Laodicea, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Is he clear? Repent. The third R, you want to deal with sin? Remain. Remain. You find it in the term hold fast. Smyrna, Revelation 2.10, be faithful until death. Remain faithful. Thyatira, Revelation 2.24, hold fast until I come. Sardis, Revelation 3.3, remember what you've received and heard and keep it. Philadelphia, Revelation 3.11, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have. Remember, repent, remain. That's how you deal with a sin. You hold on like a rock climber free soloing a massive vertical cliff you hold on with all your might to what you know to be true he's going to address our sin point five i will discipline sin in my churches i'll discipline sin here i simply want to note that when jesus does point out the sin and call for a response he also pro- provides a penetrating warning for any congregation that chooses to ignore his confrontation of their sin he's going to deal with the church he might suddenly wage war against the church chapter 2 verse 16 Repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Sardis chapter 3 verse 3, remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. I mean, you don't want the eternal glorified Christ who is prepared for judgment to turn his gaze toward making war against your church. Because he'll eventually shut the church down, won't he? That's what he told the church in Ephesus. If you don't repent and do the deeds you did at first, I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. You ever been to ancient Ephesus today? It's an impressive ghost town. Revelation 3.16, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. He'll deal with the church. He'll discipline the church. You do understand no church has an inherent right to remain open when it will not respond repentantly to Christ. Not our church, not any church. We don't have a right to stay open. It'd be arrogance, pure arrogance for us to think that such warnings don't belong to us as a local congregation. High gear, point six of Jesus' sermon. I will commend faithfulness in my churches. Faithfulness. What kind of faithfulness? He'll commend a hatred for false teaching. A hatred for false teaching. It was the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 2. You cannot tolerate evil men. You put to test those who call themselves apostles. He commends them for that. I'm grateful that you hate false teaching, that you'll put it to the test. Thyatira, He commends them. You have not known the deep things of Satan, Revelation 2.24. He commends them. I'm glad that you don't tolerate that. Even among all the problematic churches, he still commends areas he finds faithful. You, You do understand that. An Orthodox church that has problems is still a church. They preach the right gospel, but they have all these other problems that could close their doors, but they're still a church. Christ still cares about them. He still deals with them. He might even commend them. He also commends the purity of those who persevere. The purity of those who persevere. Revelation 3, 4, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Church in Philadelphia was pure. I've put in front of you, Revelation 3, 8, an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. 
because you have kept the word of my perseverance and I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour that is about to come on the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. That's a great commendation. You persevere in purity, the Lord is going to show everybody, I loved you. It's not all warning. Point number seven, I will reward those who persevere. I will reward those who persevere in my churches. I just want you to hear them. Just listen to them. Revelation 2, 7, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Verse 11, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Verse 17, to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Verse 26, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. Revelation 3, 5, He who overcomes thus will be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Verse 21, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. How many promises were there? Eternal promises. All of those eternal promises promised in relationship to the return of Jesus. How many of them got that promise? All seven churches. Five problematic churches got an eternal promise? Yes. If you'll repent, you have the promise of eternal life. That's pretty powerful. He will reward those who persevere. No perseverance, walk away. No eternal life. That's the warning. Last point of Jesus' sermon. It's really simple. My churches must listen to me. That's the last thing he says to all seven churches. He who has an ear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Why does he end that way? He's telling us, listen to me. We don't just have to listen with individual ears. We have to listen with congregational ears too, don't we? It's not just about my life and my issues. It's about our life and our issues together. Do we recognize that he's actually speaking to us? Every Sunday we gather and we hear his word, he's speaking to us. Are we thinking about which details of his attributes will actually solve our congregational problems? We're connecting his nature to our needs? Are we soberly reflecting on the reality that Jesus knows who is among us, how we persevere, our true spiritual condition, and whether we're faithful to him or not? Are we actually open to the scalpel? of Christ when he cuts into our congregational sin to expose the disease that exists below the surface, whether it's in our vitality, our doctrine, or our morals? Are we grateful that Jesus calls us to remember what he's done for us? Are we repentant from what we've done against him? Are we holding on to the truth that he's instilled in us? Are we mindful that the warnings he gives could easily apply to us? Have we welcomed his commendation when he finds us to be faithful? In other words, we're asking the question, are we hearing what the Spirit is saying to all of his churches? Let's pray together.
Father, we ask for help now to discern the answer to these questions in front of us and whether or not we're hearing what the Spirit is saying to us. And may we respond faithfully and then in turn be a help to other congregations to see that our Lord loves us. How could he not? When we see what he's given, what he has done, we recognize he loves this church. He loves every true church more than any person on the planet could ever love a church. And that encourages us. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. You've promised to build it. And in building it, you will preserve it. Help us to respond as a congregation. I pray for those here this morning who are struggling to persevere. I pray for those who are struggling to remain faithful, that they hear what the Spirit is saying, and you give them grace to press on and hold fast. I pray for those who are outside of Christ and you've exposed their sin and their need of the Savior and that you would draw them to yourself and show them the eternal value of following Christ. And Lord, let us never, all of us together, take for granted what you have given us as a congregation. Never to just rest on our history or even our present circumstances, but constantly press on to be faithful under the Lordship of our Savior. We ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.